I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Headspace, where we bring together three contributors from this month's edition of Prospect Magazine and ask them, what's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark, and as the April edition of Prospect whizzes off the presses, we're here to unpick the nature of a crisis. And heaven knows there's enough of them about at the moment, but we're going to settle on just three. The Labour Party's existential malaise, the possibility of France installing a far-right president, and a really serious financial crunch on the NHS. You just need to face up to the fact that much of this money, when you look at it, will get spent one way or another. The question is with what degree of equity and what degree of fairness. History has something to say about each of these crises, so what can we take from that? And what is it that might be truly different this time? With me to diagnose the diseases and perhaps prescribe some treatment are Nicholas Timmins, a distinguished journalist who adopted a soothing bedside manner every time the NHS was laid up over a 40-year stretch. And Lucy Wadham, who's a novelist and a sharp-eyed observer of all matters French. And down the line from Australia, Ross McKibben, who's a historian of sport, class and much more besides, but most especially of the Labour Party. So let's start with you, Ross. Crises are a particular pressure point, really. But in your magisterial essay, you begin by taking an, a long step back, even a series of steps back from the current Westminster panic about Jeremy Corbyn. And you argue that Labour's been on some kind of a slow slide since some um, 1951. Yeah, as you know, 1951, the Labour Party was the best year in terms of votes the Labour Party ever had. Got not 49% of the votes. Didn't win, but it came very close to winning. Thereafter, it's been kind of up and down, but basically the incline has been steadily down, so that at the last election it got about uh, 31% of the votes, but it has actually been worse than that. So there has been a very significant decline in the Labour Party's electorate in the last 60 years, and that's something the Labour Party has struggled with, but not all that successfully. In Really, in summary, what sort of changes in Britain do you think are at work in disadvantaging well, Labour? you have to see this in the, in the context of social democratic and Labour parties everywhere in the West. They've all declined and some have declined even more than the British Labour Party, the Swedish Socialists, for example, the German Social Democrats. The most resilient, which is the Australian Labour Party, it also, however, has declined steadily in, in the terms of votes cast. So it is partly an international problem, which isn't all that much worse in Britain than anywhere else. But I think it's due to the fact that the industrial bases of these parties, the industrial working class, trade unionist 
bases of these parties has now greatly declined and they've not been able really to find voters elsewhere. New Labour was one attempt to do that, but it hasn't quite worked. Just one thing should be said, though, that all the major parties have declined. Uh, Labour more than most in Britain, but the Conservative Party has also greatly declined. Ross, I wanted to ask you if you felt that Piketty's book about capital in the 21st century might have a kind of solution to selling social democracy to the electors of um, Mm. Labour? Yeah, at the moment, there's no sign of that. Piketty's book, Sad, had been very widely read, as you imply, and it's had some influence, I suppose, on people who read the broadsheets. But there's not much evidence that it's had an influence on the wider electorate. I mean, I think the wider electorate still has a strong sense of fairness and fair dealing and what, what they're due but I don't think it's, it's made people turn in the direction of social democratic parties, which I find very puzzling. Because like you, I, I find social democracy still quite as relevant for late capitalist societies as it's always been. And we should bring um, this up to the crisis of the, of the moment, as, as, as it were, um, Ross, because you sort of see the reason why people might want to vote for a social democratic party, as you're saying, but you also observe in pretty brutal terms, that they're, uh, they're not doing so now, they're not doing so under Jeremy Corbyn. No, there is a sort of puzzling element there, because if you look at Corbyn's own views about the EU or foreigners or whatever, they're closer to UKIP than any other Labour leader. But at the same time, he's just not held in any respect. Uh, he's regarded as sort of an amateur, not professional, can't take him seriously. So I, I think there, there is a kind of curious paradox here that a man who in some senses has more uh, sympathy for the people who have left the Labour Party is not actually particularly attractive to those people and that's that's the Labour Party's difficulty. Nick? But Ross isn't part of Labour's problem here, it is Scotland where in a sense we have a nationalist government that actually behaves rather like a social democratic government and has nicked all Labour's clothes in Scotland which is one of the reasons why it's very difficult to ever see a in the near future, to see a Labour gov- government getting elected? Well, I mean, Scotland is a disaster for Labour because, um, I mean, it really was heavily dependent on Scotland. And if you look at the result of the 2010 elections, I mean, Labour did as well in Scotland as it's ever done. And then there was this kind of shocking collapse. There's one view, a former student of mine who was a Labour MP and who lost his seat, he said that basically <clears throat> the Catholic voters of Scotland uh, hated the Tories more than they loved Labour. And uh, when Labour associates itself with Tory unionism, that's the end. <laughs> um, I don't know how much truth there is to that, uh, <clears throat> but I think there is some truth to it. And it, it is related to the much wider question of the legitimacy of the UK in parts of the country like Scotland or Northern Ireland, where, you know, it's not all that legitimate now. But, Ross, you then get to this crunch point where you say things are so bad. You know, we've had this by-election, which there's one clever chap out there who says it's the worst since 1878 uh, as an opposition by-election performance. He's got some measure that shows that. And you say times are so serious, the long-term problems are so bad, and Corbyn's compounding them so seriously that the MPs should walk away from the official structures of the Labour Party. Well, I mean... (laughs) As I've said, it's not something I would normally recommend, actually. In the past, these splits have occurred, but only small numbers of people have left. And in the long term, they've had very little effect. 
But I, I think the problem in a way is now it's, it's very difficult to see where the Labour Party goes. I've always thought that the trouble began when the Parliamentary Party lost its exclusive right to elect the leader. I was, I was always very much opposed to that. And in all those countries where it's happened, it's just, it's just led to trouble. And since that's not going to be restored, I mean, the NEC is not going to do anything about it. And if you're worried that the Labour Party is looking pretty terminal, then the only way out is probably quite a drastic step, mm. which m might at least force the NEC to take seriously the position of the Labour Party. And Lucy, a final word to you on this. I mean, as I say, the, the, the French socialist, you talk about their withering membership. That's unlike Britain, where the membership's been going up. They're very unlikely to get through even to the final round of the French presidency. They've had quite a few splits over the years. Do, do you look at France and say Labour should organise a coup against Corbyn, however drastic that might be? Or do, or do you um, say the lesson of France is, is to do something different? I think France is interesting because for once um, it feels in this particular instance that they are ahead of us in terms of thinking about social democracy and how it can be appealing in the global capitalist environment. And someone like Amon, even though he clearly won't be elected, Benoit Amon, the socialist candidate for the presidency, he's trying to rethink. He's offering things like the universal revenue. He's, he's trying to think of ways in which social democracy can adjust to the modern era and address things like increasing inequality. Let's move seamlessly on from a party in decline to a party, Lucy, on the front foot, which um, probably for many of our listeners, unfortunately, is Marine Le Pen's National Front, which has, you think, despite I think most of the opinion polls, a very real chance now of winning the French presidential election. I suppose the piece that I wrote focused on the sense that even though the polls say she won't win, I personally am afflicted with a kind of deep fear that she might. And I think my feeling is felt by a very large proportion of the French population as well. It's an irrational fear. But you do quote numbers saying an awfully high, you know, the, the polls say that when it comes in France, there's this two round system and someone has to amass a absolute majority to get through on that second ballot it still looks like she's a long way from that but you say lots of um I, can that i say your compatriots uh there are polls saying that lots of your compatriots think she could well win um even if the ordinary polls of votes say they say they don't so so i understand that distinction but you get i think in the piece even gloomier than that because you say that there's such despair with the other parties that you can't make many assumptions about what happens between the first and the second round anymore. That's it. Even though the polls show that she's not likely to win, there is this sense that France can and has in the past exhibited kind of almost suicidal behaviour when it comes to its democratic institutions. And you're talking about Vichy there? I'm talking about Vichy. I'm talking about the fact that, you know, when the Nazis invaded France in six weeks. Basically, they sort of let go of the steering wheel. Paul Reynaud resigned and they called in Marshal Pétain, the 84-year-old, who, who used the opportunity to impose a deeply authoritarian anti-Semitic regime. So that was an irrational decision. There's an atmosphere of despair in France, which is directly 
linked to the idealistic nature of the French mm. people, that so much of their political philosophy and their way of life is built on the idea that what must drive us is our ideas. There's a huge gap between these ideas and the reality of everyday life. Mm. And that is why there's such despair. And isn't there also quite a lot of disillusion in France with Europe, with the European Union? In a sense, you know, it was, it was the great founding member and it was there to hold the balance with Germany. And there seems, I'm looking from the outside, there seems to be a loss of faith in that as well. There is. I mean, that happened... Which means if were to win, it's kind of a good part of the European Union. Yes. I mean, again, polls do indicate that most French people would rather stay in the EU and the Eurozone. But there's this sort of irresistible desire to sort of play with fire because there is real disappointment about the about the union and what it has brought again because of this gap between the founding idea and the reality um ross um you've studied um the world a lot before the second world war as well as after i mean does this strike you as some a time where there's parallels with the the politics of the 30s well yes but uh nowhere near as extreme it is a bit peculiar at the moment because, despite everything, Western Europe has, has really been extraordinarily rich in the last 30, 40 years. Everybody's standard, well, virtually everybody's standard of living has risen significantly, uh, many others more than others. But it's a bit different in that sense from the 1930s. But the same thing, I mean, there is, there is the same thing there, which is migration and xenophobia. And in Britain, I would think that that is probably stronger now than it was in the 1920s or the 1930s, and probably also in France. Xenophobia is worse than it was in the interwar years. Blimey. I agree. I agree. I mean, I think certainly, I mean, the 30s were characterised by the Front Populaire in France, and that was socially progressive, and it was very polarised with extreme right leagues. But I agree with you, Ross. I think it, xenophobia is greater today because of the challenges of, of globalisation. The French, even though they believe in equality and fraternity, they, they also fear a multicultural society. You focus very much on Marine Le Pen and this 30-year march of the, of the Front National getting stronger and stronger, Lucy. But the big unknown is who she's going to be up against in the election. That probably in the end will determine her chances. It seems a bit like it's a it's her versus an, a number of flawed possibilities. Well, it looks like it'll be her versus Macron in the second round because Fillon has so disgraced himself in the eyes of the large majority of the French people. So Fillon, the, 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 the Gaullist traditional right-wing candidate who's been involved in a, in a financial scandal. Yes, exactly. His wife has been accused of a fake job as his parliamentary secretary, um, for which she earns €680,000 um, over the years. And as he set himself up as l'honnête homme, you know, the, the, the most honest candidate, most people are really appalled. So that plays into the Marine Le Pen, they're all rotten narrative. If that then leaves the last man standing is uh, this young guy, Emmanuel Macron, mm. where does he stand on the spectrum and how does he appeal to these um, the, the so-called left-behinds? The, the cliché of the day is, is, is saying it's the left-behinds who are deciding elections at the moment. His approach is to use this quite new-age language of harnessing energy, you know, the national energy, and mm. encouraging private enterprise, 
liberalising the labour laws. He, along with Fillon, all believe in the idea of wealth redistribution. So I suppose to answer your question, he's a centrist. He's committed to the global economy. He's committed to Europe. Um, And in that sense, he is very different to Marine Le Pen. So Mm. there'll be a very clear choice. From outside, he looks like a sort of French Blair. (laughs) But yeah, he does. Finally, let's try and move away from party politics. Well, sort of, (laughs) onto uh, the NHS. Um, Nick, you've written a potted history of um, NHS crises for us, starting with a personal moment of memory in 1974. Uh, Yes, well, it's one of my very first press conferences as a health reporter when... uh it's interesting looking at the parallels and the differences, but the NHS was, 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 in, was in trouble. Uh, it was short of money, waiting lists were rocketing, and uh, I went along to the British Medical Association's wonderful luncheons, red brick building, where Derek, Dr Derek Stevenson, the secretary of the BMA, was giving what in those days was a rare press conference, uh, in which he demanded uh, a royal commission on the NHS and an extra 500 million of spending at a time when we only spent three billion in total, so it was a massive cash injection. And he said he didn't really care where the money, he just had to find more money. So he said, you know, it could be a sweepstake, could be hotel charges, could visit the GP, kind of anything, just crashing his fist on the table saying the fundamental thing is it cannot go on like this, he said, and morale <laughs> has never been lower. And one of my great lines is actually the truth is that morale in the NHS has never been lower every day since 1948. <laughs> and does that, zipping us forward to the present, you've got this... Um Long perspective, you've seen that crisis, you've seen other crises you talk about in the 80s and then again the the 90s. Does this one feel different to you? It feels different in some ways. Um, If you go back a few years, when the coalition got elected and said they were going to have 0.1% real terms increases for the NHS, which is virtually a standstill, I and many others, I think, would have thought by 2013 it would have been in deep, deep, deep trouble. So in some ways it's done incredibly well Mm. to get this far before you start seeing the performance really starting to tail off, which is what you've got now with, you know, people waiting for ages in A&E and you can't get people out of hospital and too many people coming in and all the waiting times are going in the wrong direction. So it does feel different in the sense it's taken longer for it to become a crisis than I think many people thought it would. But... It feels worse in some ways because there was such an improvement in the NHS over the 2000s. You know, when money was going at huge rates, hospitals were being rebuilt, general practices got a lot more money and was doing well. Waiting times came absolutely tumbling down. I mean, people, you know, loads, you ten, hundreds of thousands of people were waiting, you know, 18 months and more back in 2000. And it really did get down to a maximum wait of 18 weeks, give or take a few specialities. There's huge improvements. And it costs billions and billions and billions to achieve that. Mm. And so it feels different or worse this time in a sense because that may all get lost. Mm. And if it gets lost, it will take a, forever and a ton of money to claw it back. L- Lucy, um, in France has a slightly better funded and different healthcare system. Is there the same sense of crisis with that? Very much so. But I can't say that the population is worried about it. It's not taken on board as cause for concern like it would be in this country. Because there is a belief that excellent healthcare is a fundamental right. And there isn't that sort of Protestant ethos about the need to save money. And there, it is a, a lot more lavish, the French system. I mean, having been quite ill myself, I have seen just how lavish it is. Comfortable and quick and all that sort yes, of thing. Yes. Yeah. Because one of, the, one of the things we tend to forget is that most countries, most of the time, think the health, services, the health system is in crisis. People sit in Britain say it's only the NHS. Well, actually, France regularly has doctors and nurses strikes every, every now and then, which we've only had one in the last 30 years. 
Ross, some in some ways, there's some grounds to be sanguine here, aren't there? I mean, if you if you think back to um, the Thatcher days and, and and the way things were going, and then if you talk about some of the trends that you've talked about in terms of, you know, the, the social basis of solidarity fading away, you probably wouldn't have dared to hope that there would have been a NHS functioning on the same fundamental model in 2017 mm. as there is. I mean, Nick may not agree with this, but I, I regard the NHS as the sort of classic social democratic institution. I mean, it is a bit different from all the other insurance or state-funded health systems everywhere else. And I think most people in Britain still hold to that view. I mean, I think it's ideological. One of the few social democratic institutions that's ideologically acceptable to the majority of people. But the, what I found worrying about Nick's essay was that a lot of the things we, we turn to, like a hypothecated tax or whatever, look as though they don't work. And the only thing that will really work is an increase in general taxation. And that's where the trouble starts, I think, that people are, you know, feel very fond of the NHS, uh, think it should be preserved, but are now extremely reluctant, so it would seem anyway, to pay any more in taxation to keep it that way. Well, of course, that's, um, that's partly why some people argue for a hypothecated tax, don't they? Because they would say, well, yeah, if you had a hypothecated tax, people would see what they're paying In Australia, towards. it's funded by a, a, ta- a levy on everybody's uh, income, compulsory yep. levy. Yeah. Um, but that has sort of only half worked. Yes. One of your points, Nick, is that at the moment, the, uh, the crisis is, is coming about because of inadequate social care. We heard a bit about that in the budget, but probably not enough which leaves you with kind of old people who can't be discharged and so on so if you had a ring fence tax for the nhs it might not even if it was only going to the nhs and not social care it might not even deal with the root problem well indeed and i think one of the things that you know the english will eventually have to face up to is that you know with an aging population more people with multiple conditions long-term conditions health and social care just become inextricably tied up the two the, you know, the one depends on the other and that's been becoming true of the last 25, 30 years, but we kind of don't recognise it in the way the system works and is funded. So it may be that in the long run, you've got to find a different way of doing health and social care funding together so you do get something something that's a much more seamless system. Because you're dead right. I mean, if you put a load of money into social care, it will help with the NHS, but it won't necessarily solve all the problems in the NHS and vice versa. You put a ton of money into the NHS, if you don't sort out something to do with social care, you don't really solve the problem. So there's a real task of, um, I don't know if it's political leadership, but who's going to do that? Who's going to force these necessary conversations? Well, it's utterly unclear who actually will force these conversations. But, you know, there is rising demand out there. That's quite clear. And it's going to get paid for one way, or most of it is going to get paid for one way or another. So if the NHS starts falling apart, more people will pay privately. And it will become Mm. more inequitable, but a lot of it will still happen. Mm. So in a sense... You just need to face up to the fact that much of this money, when you look at it, will get spent one way or another. The question is with what degree of equity and what degree of fairness. And that's, in a sense, the big challenge that lies behind some of the stuff with social care, where at the moment people have to run down an awful lot of their savings before they get much help. And uh, the same could become true of health if you just let it drag on that way. So there's a question of whether where do governments want to go? Sorry, Ross, I just wanted to ask you about your comment when you talked about social democracy and this idea that the new Labour missed an opportunity to sell the idea of social democracy and the idea of a greater need for redistribution, 
Do you think that is where the energy should go in relation to this particular problem we're talking about? I think it probably should. I mean, I think that an opportunity was missed there, partly because Blair, I think, fundamentally never really believed it was possible. That's my suspicion. I mean, Britain is now a predominantly middle-class society, as, as France is. But it's a very diverse middle class with lots of disagreements and fractures. And I've always thought that it was just as susceptible to kind of social democratic arguments as anybody else. But Blair, Blair missed the opportunity, partly his own mistakes and partly because he didn't try. I was very interested in Nick's essay about the, the, the hookup between social care and the NHS. And it occurred to me, I, I don't know what you'd think, whether one answer is simply to compel people to pay more. I mean, whether there is anything to be said, for example, to GP co-payment or compulsory levies, what's worried me a bit about that is that they would then simply slot into further cuts coming from general revenue. But I'd be interested to know whether Nick thinks that forcing people to pay more is, is one way of doing it. Well, of course, taxation is one way of forcing people to pay more, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, you're straight, whether, whether you're, you're doing it more directly. It. Well, you know, um, the, argu- the, you know, the arguments about charging for things like GP visits go backwards and forwards over the years. I, I mean, there are plenty of countries that do it. Australia does it. New Zealand does it. it well, cle- Australia tried to introduce co yeah. but it's actually been abandoned. It's been ab- yes, exactly. Well, that shows part of the difficulty of doing it, doesn't it, when you don't have it. Yeah. Though New Zealand's yeah. always had it and people pay. But, you know, it always raises the worries about does it deter people who need to go? Do you end up getting higher costs if you do? And the charge has to be quite substantial to raise, with relatively few exceptions, if it's going to raise a significant amount of money. And then there is the point that you made is, is if you do that, are you merely substituting for what would have been taxation income anyway? So actually you don't spend, mm. you don't raise any more money in the long run. Because, of course, as soon as you have to charge in the first year, the government can say, well, this will raise an extra X billion but you've no idea what the tax funding would have been two years down the line, so you're not sure at all whether this is really extra money after the first year, because the tax base may be eroding anyway. The tax base may be eroding anyway. I have to say, I mean, what I take away from this is there's no kind of uh, bright idea, policy wonk way out of this. It's it's going to take some persuasion, and persuasion needs some politics. If I could just say, Tom, one of the differences between the 1950s, when Labour was very strong, and now is that a much smaller proportion of the population paid income tax. And I think it was therefore easier to raise tax as well as to reduce tax. I mean, governments were much more flexible than they are now. And it may be that the fact that virtually everybody, well, not everybody, but the great majority of people now pay income tax have made governments much more cherry of doing anything that's dependent upon increased general taxation. And that that may be part of the problem. The idea of, you know, to come back to Piketty, and the idea of taxing this global economy more effectively, which was mooted, you know, after the crisis of 2008. Why doesn't anyone do that? Why, for example, is there no harmonisation of fiscal policy when it comes to multinational corporations within the EU? Well, I mean, it's clearly true. It's one of the paradoxes of the EU, I think, that, you know, the ever closer union, uh, the Eurozone and all that. And yet, the members of the EU are still engaged in a kind of jungle competitive war about who will charge the lowest taxation rates on corporations and companies. And the behaviour of some of the EU countries, particularly, say, Luxembourg, has been absolutely disgraceful. And it, it is interesting that national interests within the EU, even those 
countries belong to the Eurozone, national interests still seem to be trumping any kind of commonality. It's not just taxation. I mean, if one looks at what's happened to, to Greece, it's also true there. And I think it's something that I think Piketty never really faced. How do you get the political power to force corporations, for example, to pay a decent amount of tax? One way is simply to tax revenue earned in a country. It's a very simple way. You could simply tax Coca-Cola or whatever on the revenue they earned in Britain, but nobody will do it. Um, mm. And I think ideologically, globalizers are still absolutely in control. This sort of globalizers agenda, if you like, isn't it? That, that globalizers, as represented by the people who go to Davos, is a mix of powerful political people and business God, people. Yeah. And so they, they want to cooperate on some things, but they're not so keen on cooperating on increasing corporation tax. No, no, they certainly aren't. But I mean, it's a, it's a puzzle, say, for Theresa May, you know, who's a product, in a sense, of people who are absolutely fed up with neoliberalism and free trade and all the rest of it. And yet the whole thrust of her government is global free trade and to make the rest of the world even more free trading than it is now and providing even fewer protections. That's the sort of tension that actually might bring the whole project down. And then you've got the fact that people are, because they don't like the effects of globalisation, they're going into a more nationalist mindset, which then makes any form of cooperation, technical cooperation that you need to tackle the problems Lucy's talking about, m more difficult and, and not more less. More difficult. Yeah, no, I think that's true, actually. I think that's true. And that's it for Headspace for this month. Thank you very much for listening. And of course, special thanks to Ross McKibben, who's joined us from Australia, I should say, uh, Lucy Wadham and Nicholas Timmins, who are here in London. The April edition of the magazine is out now, featuring the full essays by all three of these writers and more besides, including Freya Johnston on Jane Austen, Nick Cohen on Theresa May and Julian Bugini on how kingfishers are so damn good at fishing without having any idea how they're doing it. If you want to know what I'm on about there, I'm afraid you'll have to pick up the magazine from Thursday the 16th of March in the shops, or even better, if you've enjoyed the discussion, go to prospectmagazine.co.uk and hit subscribe. I'm Tom Clark, the producer was Matt Hill at Rethink Audio, and we'll see you again next time. Thank you very much, and goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.